what we make of it. Shotgun wedding. Sometimes a first date requires paperwork. A Good Omens fic, written by Charlotte Madison and read by Literarian. Chapter 42 My friends, this is exactly what I want. It is almost nothing and almost all. Now, if you want, take your leave of me. But because I ask for silence, don't think I mean to die. On the contrary, it happens that I'll bring myself to life. It happens that I am and that I'll continue on. Never have I felt so filled with sound. Never have I claimed so many kisses. Leave me alone with the day. I ask permission to be born. Pablo Neruda, excerpt from Pedo Silencio. Dearest C, the boys are busy with homework and talk turned to romantic entanglements and the lack thereof, so I decided to make myself scarce. Eric has got me settled downstairs at our booth and I've brought the beautiful weighted pen you gave me, hoping to put it through its paces. So far, so good. It was great fun helping you put in the strawberries and spinach yesterday. I've never done anything like it before, handling fragile little shoots and roots and dirt. And it's astounding how quickly the beans have come up. You make our tiny balcony burst with life. It's a rare talent, truly. While I enjoyed it, I'll feel more at ease when I'm certain the plants I handled have survived the trauma of transplanting. I can't help but picture you in a garden of our own one day, a real garden, stamping about with a frown, grumbling at all the flowers and fruit. I've just realized I said our balcony. Oh dear. Pursuant to our conversation last Friday, I remain shocked at how quickly I'm laying claim to your territory after only a few short months. If you don't take measures soon, I'm likely to become a long-term problem. Yes, you should have a garden one day. I see you there already in my mind's eye, dirty and perspiring and cursing up a storm, much to the consternation of your poor, theoretical, neighbours. You look very handsome with a few freckles. I'm no Madame Tracy with her tarot deck and crystal ball, but the vision is clear as anything in my imagination. I have no sense of whether it will be, but it certainly ought to be. And I ought to be there too, if only to bring you iced tea and remind you to reapply sunscreen, which of course would make you very cross and save you the sunburn you were apparently cultivating along with the climbing roses. Really, dearest, what were you thinking? You obviously need somebody to keep an eye on you. You tend to get carried away working in your hypothetical garden. 
did I mention I'm currently imbibing whiskey in our booth? It's dreadful. The whiskey, not the booth. It's strange, but I've never been one for envisioning my own future. Not much to envision, is there? Only books and classrooms and cups of cold tea as far as the eye can see. But when I imagine your future, I can see myself there with you, along with Adam et al. My notion of what Anthony J. Crowley ought to have is very vivid, you see. You ought to have a shed for working on your bikes, and large windows for your houseplants, and a kitchen with more counter space next to the stove. You ought to have a very deep couch for post-gardening naps, in the conjectural garden, of course, and a good projector for movie nights. And, it seems, me. I did enjoy Die Hard more than I thought, by the by. Adam was right. We should do it again with the them at Christmas. Do you even celebrate Christmas? I've never asked. I wonder how we'll do holidays. I'm fond of solstice myself, summer and winter, as well as equinoxes. Celebrating the very tilt of our planet and the star it circles. My point is, I've long refused to dwell on my own future because I believed that to wish for any particular outcome would be courting disappointment. My subconscious premise was perhaps that wishing and wanting in themselves cause heartache. Unassailable logic, to be sure. But I ask myself now, with that absurd assumption laid bare, Aren't our futures determined in part by the wishes we choose to chase? Isn't it fundamentally human to reach for what we want? And I'm learning a great deal about what I want. Consider it your influence and Adam's. Always Adam's. So, as promised, I have meditated on the subject and I've settled on my list. Five things. I want you. I want my life with you. I want to be useful. I want to be seen. And I want to experience the story of where I am. To observe the sky and the earth and all of the foolish creatures on it, including you and me. Before I proceed, allow me to draw your attention to items one and two because it's important that you understand the difference between them. I love my life with you. That is, I love our space. I love the rhythms we are falling into. I love being near you. I love being part of Adam's life. All of this. I love how you treat me. I love how you make me feel and how it feels to love you. And... Good Lord, I can't begin to relate how I feel about your talents in the kitchen. I'd go through the entire box of stationery. Your butternut squash gnocchi has ruined me for any other. Encore! I also love what you make of me. I want to continue being the person I am at your side. This is by far the best version of myself I have ever encountered. And I want these things, 
all of them, because of the pleasure and the joy they bring me, naturally. The perks. There are ever so many perks. My younger self, still scrubbing at the stubborn residue of Catholic principles, would have ascetically denied wanting any of the perks. That self would have been a liar. I know better now, and I freely confess to wanting all of it, all the selfish pleasures of a happy love. And, also, I want you. I want you for your own sake. I want you because you are you. I want you beyond any benefit to me. You are enough. I love you. You see the distinction? It's the difference between kissing you goodnight because kissing you feels good to me and kissing you goodnight because you should be kissed. Because you deserve to fall asleep knowing you are loved. Because you ought to rest easy and dream of whatever you like best. Because you are marvellous. And I know I'm rather going on but I've built up a good head of steam, and among the many things I want to do at this moment is to go on telling you how lovely you are and how much you deserve. With an alarming number of parathenticals, apparently. You'll claim to hate it, and your eyebrows will go all pinched, I know it. But if I'm effusive, you are squarely to blame. You and the gnocchi and possibly my second glass of abysmal whisky. I did not think this would ever happen to me, you see. Not only a relationship, but one I am truly inside of, rather than watching helplessly from behind glass. And I want it to go on. I want to make it work. I want to stay. I want to fall deeper into this life of mine, forgetting more and more that you were not always a part of it. Occasionally, the newness of it all still staggers me, of course. It hit me this Sunday when you put on a jacket I'd never seen before, and I counted up the weeks again. That's why I sat gawping like a goldfish for so long instead of getting dressed. How is it possible that we married before I had even seen your book collection? That we exchanged rings before we had a proper meal together? That we would have parted ways on our wedding night with a peck on the cheek if I hadn't brazenly chased you home? But more and more, the shock is fading. When I sit by the window, reading, and I hear you through the door, humming in the kitchen, bothering Adam, stalking protectively through your space like a panther. The sound of you no longer surprises me. It doesn't amaze me. It simply is, and it ought to continue to be, because you ought to be mine, and I ought to be yours, and I ought to be reading in my chair next to our bed, and you ought to be scolding the yucca in the office. It's only natural. It's only correct. As if the universe would be defying the laws of particle physics to allow any other arrangement. Did the yucca disappoint you somehow? You sounded very stern with it last week. 
as for the rest of my list, you astonish me daily with your generosity. I want to go walk under the sky and watch the birds. You ask how far and you fetch our coats. I want to make the best use of the precious minutes I have with my students. You stay up late to scheme and argue over test questions and lesson outlines with me. I want to be seen. Crowley, best beloved, there are no words for the sweet ache of my heart just now. I would trade the springtime for this. I absolutely would, for a life in the light of your attention. For all the ways you notice and remember. You know when and how I take my tea. You always leave the coriander off my plate. You often know my mood before I do. My story has been one of feeling overlooked and unprotected, and here you are, a sentinel, a guardian, a lighthouse, always watching over me. I am not staying for the mustard, darling. And yet you are the first person who has ever cared to ask or remember which is my favourite. I am most definitely tipsy at this point, having tried your trick of drinking before supper, which I'm fairly sure you can tell by my handwriting, if not by this increasingly sentimental broadside. As for what writing all of this down makes me want to do to you once you're home from work today, on reflection, that's best left out of letters that curious stepnephews seem to be in the habit of reading on the sly. Adam, if this hasn't made you wretch already, put it down, or else the next one will be sappier still, so help me. If you think this is bad, be warned that I have far worse on tap. So, here. Here is an outrageously dramatic whiskey-sodden letter for you, my love, to tell you that I want you, and I want what you do for me, and I am starting to believe I am permitted to want both of these things. Maybe I never needed permission from anyone. I want so much, and I never knew it until now. If I am an angel, I am a dreadfully selfish one. I look forward to your flapping and sputtering and stamping about upon receipt of this letter. I thoroughly enjoy sending you into a tizzy. How lucky I am that it's so easy to do. I remain yours ever, AZ. God, you're such a diva. I don't know why I even fucking bother. Aziraphale looked up from his book to contemplate the spectacle of his spouse from this odd angle. At that moment, Crowley was high overhead on a stepstool, wearing only his preposterously tight jeans, wrestling with the wiring on the ceiling for the night-blooming series. In the light of the reading lamp, his skin glowed pale Rembrandt gold, contoured by deep charcoal shadows. Crowley had been talking to the plant for several minutes, 
but Aziraphale had grown so accustomed to the nightly ritual that his husband's words were only registering now. Have you considered encouraging it? asked Aziraphale. She's conceited enough with all the attention she gets, Crowley complained, reaching precariously far from his perch to adjust a wire, straining on bare tiptoes. Look, I've built her a whole jungle gym, and is she grateful? No! Don't coddle her, only makes her more demanding. Go on, back to your book. Words, words, words. Aziraphale looked out of the window into the dark and saw himself dimly reflected in his reading chair. He was only five pages from the end. He held his place in the book with a few fingers. But some restlessness made him want to set it aside rather than finish before bed. He looked up to watch both Mirror Crowley and Real Crowley straining to run some fishing line through a ceiling hook to hold a branch. Was it a branch or a stem? Aziraphale wasn't sure. The clumsy-looking succulent had spread from its pot across the top of the window, not unlike a giant squid, with heavy stems, or leaves, or vines, or something several feet long. Growing ever after. Crowley pulled his line taut and knotted it to support a giant bud the size of his open hand that would soon flower gloriously for a single night. Are they getting it all wrong at the end, Angel? he asked. Getting what wrong? Your book. He had noticed. Of course he had noticed. Crowley always noticed. Aziraphale stroked the hardcover's embossed jacket thoughtfully with his thumb. Oh no, they are managing. You looked invested earlier. Yes, well, Aziraphale sighed. You only get to finish a book for the first time once, you know. And this one may be difficult to let go. I hate to think of the story ending. Stories don't end when the book ends, Crowley said matter-of-factly. You're just not spying on them anymore. A soft laugh of surprise escaped Aziraphale. Ha! Did you come up with that? Crowley shook his head. Mm, Adam. All the same, perhaps I'll do the last few pages in the morning. When the sun's up. Your spine really is absurd, darling. Are you sure it's meant to do that? Spine! Crowley hissed through gritted teeth, and with one last snip of the secateurs, he stood up straight, or something like it, to survey his handiwork. Aziraphale couldn't quite tell what he'd changed, but it didn't matter. Crowley knew what he was doing. Or else he'd needed to fuss and he'd found a worthy outlet. Their evenings often ended like this now, reading and gardening in the same few square feet by the tall bedroom window. 
Crowley collected his tools from the top of the wardrobe and returned to the floor. See, more supported now for when they bloom, he said, pointing to the six spots that were swelling in size daily. They were fleshy and thick and wreathed with sharp little green tendrils, looking exactly like something out of Little Shop of Horrors. Aziraphale had seen pictures of the spectacular flower that would emerge, but it was hard to imagine that coming from this. How long now? he asked. Maybe three days, said Crowley. Maybe five. It'll be amazing. Just wait. Don't tell her I said that. Crowley folded the step stool with a clack and put it away in the closet. Aziraphale looked at the unevenly divided pages of his book, at the place where his hand interrupted the narrative. He was still irrationally disquieted by the idea of reading the last page after dark. So he let his hand slip free, and the volume clapped shut. He snapped his fingers to turn on the dim bedside lamps and then switched off his reading light the better to look out the window. He could see a star through the light pollution, just one in their little triangle of sky, bounded by the black roofline of the building across the alley. He still saw himself, too, a faint silhouette framed in vines and leaves. Each plant had its ghostly double in the glass. The fresh smell of soil and growth surrounded him, and the carpet was soft beneath his feet. It was the perfect place to read. Too perfect to read at the moment. That good, eh? Crowley asked, coming to stand behind his chair. Looking up into the miniature jungle where they had recently relocated his old chair, Seemingly for good this time, Aziraphale nodded. It is, it is that good, he affirmed wholeheartedly. I meant the book, but I'll take it. You should. Sitting back, Aziraphale gave in to the urge to bow his head. He didn't have a prayer to say, but he felt an instinct to give thanks somehow. They had walked a very long time that night in the balmy air, forgetting how late the summer light lingered. As dusk fell, they'd claimed a park bench and talked for another hour at least, and still they hadn't run out of things to say. Aziraphale honestly wished he could remember every word they'd exchanged, tonight and every night, Preserve them in all their wit and elegance like so many amylites in limestone. Six months, nearly six whole months, school in service would start again soon, and yet Crowley showed no sign of tiring of his company. Meanwhile, the man in question had started scratching Aziraphale's back with nails just long enough to feel truly satisfying. Are your hands clean? Aziraphale asked, eyes closed, 
jaw loose, even as he decided it didn't matter. Didn't even touch the dirt today. What do you take me for? The scratching slowed, and Crowley started in on a serious shoulder rub, a particular talent of his. Oh, my dear. Aziraphale groaned happily as his husband worked that spot between the shoulder blades that always knotted up tight. Oh, that's not bad. That's very, yes, not bad at all. Come lie down so I can do you properly. You don't have to, you know. Oi, you saying I can't? Not at all. I only meant... You can't tell me what to do, Crowley maintained, digging into the right trapezius heart with both thumbs. And right now you are thinking big thoughts in there, and I want to push you around while you do it. Aziraphale smiled his eyes still blissfully closed. They're not so big. Come on, Angel. Crowley came around front and took Aziraphale's hands, tugging him to his feet, guiding him toward the bed, pulling off his robe and settling him with a pillow under his feet so he could lie comfortably on his belly. No, it wasn't bad at all, he thought, being looked after being important to somebody. You never did tell me how you settled on that particular endearment, Aziraphale commented as Crowley warmed some coconut oil in his hands. Why, don't you like it, Angel? No, I do, but wherever did it come from? Crowley had told many important truths in his very first love letter, but Aziraphale had underestimated how much he would ultimately appreciate the part about back rubs. Crowley thought for a while as he worked. Should I make up something that sounds significant, or should I confess that I have genuinely forgotten? he asked. It's from early on, I know that. Maybe even before cards. I don't know. Things that work sometimes just... They get to feeling like they were never otherwise, you know? You are an angel. Can't remember not thinking that anymore. Even when I beat you at cards? Never said you were a particularly nice angel. Crowley's hands hesitated, resting in place. Just my angel. Yes, thought Aziraphale. Crowley worked up and down his back in silence for a minute, ploughing and pulling and kneading. Does it bother you? The nickname? He finally asked, his voice tense. Guess I never really checked, and with your personal history, the religious stuff, all this time I've just been... No, oh, oh, no, 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 not at all, darling. Aziraphale got up on one elbow and turned to make eye contact. Perish the thought. I love it. No one's ever called me anything special. Crowley, sitting on one knee on the edge of the bed, looked abashed. Huh. 
so I didn't just foist the whole thing on you. Aziraphale rolled onto his back and reached up to stroke Crowley's cheek. He knew what was really being asked. You most certainly did not. You have not fucked it up, not even a little. For heaven's sake, look what you're doing right now. You spoil me like there's no tomorrow. Crowley frowned a little, then shut his eyes and butted his head into Aziraphale's hand like a cat demanding affection. Couldn't spoil you, he muttered. Couldn't possibly. You indulge me then. You treat me so very well, Aziraphale insisted, hoping to drive the point home. Do you believe me? Crowley nodded into his palm. Come down here with me, dear heart, said Aziraphale, tugging on his shoulder. All oily, though. So am I. We'll deal with it in the morning. said Crowley, but he rubbed down his own chest and arms to get most of the stuff off his hands, then slipped out of his jeans and into bed. He sank loose-limbed into his proprietary nook, wrapping all around Aziraphale like a sunstar. They took a deep breath in unison. That's better, isn't it, dearest? In Aziraphale's admittedly limited experience, whenever Crowley got rattled like that, stuck in one of his little worry whirlpools, he needed a good sound cuddling more than he needed anything explained. Yep. Crowley shifted his head on Aziraphale's left shoulder, cradled just beneath the clavicle. Great big heartbeat in my ear. Very thumpy. Keep it up. I think I will. Was on tomorrow? Crowley asked through half-smooshed lips. Nothing that I can think of. Just the wide-open weekend. Waiting on the diva to bloom. We could go to the farmer's market again. That was nice last time. You just want more of that cheese. I absolutely do. I'm weak for an aged cheddar. And Adam ate the lion's share. Aziraphale finger-combed Crowley's hair absently. He always does. Gotta be quick in this house. Nothing else on the schedule besides our walk. Unless you've any errands. Do you need anything? Crowley squeezed him all over. Just need you. Hmm, it's nice to be needed. What were you thinking about? When? In the window just now. Crowley slurred sleepily. Big thoughts. Oh, they weren't really, sighed Aziraphale. Mostly watching you, looking at the star, reflecting on our Friday. It's a nice day. All the days have been nice this summer. Good. Should be for you. Perhaps it is a big thought after all. Or big small thoughts. Just watching you at work. Recounting all the ways you nicen up my evenings. 
not a word, nicen. And which of us is the English teacher? I'll word as I like. In response to that, Crowley issued several garbled syllables of protest, which perhaps meant something in some other language, and wriggled higher up in the bed to bury his face in the pillow just beneath Aziraphale's ear, a spot he favoured. His breath was a bit warm and a bit loud, but they fit together like fine clockwork just there, every gear and groove. Wikipedia, Crowley mumbled. I beg your pardon? Angel, I looked you up early on. Your name, swear I got it, must have done. Ah, I see. Or maybe it's just a fact. Maybe the article confirmed what I already knew, about how sweet you are. Ugh, can't believe I just said that. Crowley sniffed and made a face that Aziraphale could picture perfectly by now. Aziraphale smiled and stroked his husband's freckled arm thoughtfully. Crowley smelled of coconut and his hair was very soft. Thank you, said Aziraphale quietly. What for? For? He swallowed. For what? Where could he possibly begin? He thought back a year to last August to a day before they'd met. And he felt suddenly overcome. He couldn't remember any more how he'd managed walking through the world without this. Missing this heat and heaviness in his arms, missing so much of himself. For all my ridiculous malarkey, Crowley volunteered, his muffled voice resonating through Aziraphale's skin. For the, uh, for the privilege of knowing you, I suppose, Aziraphale decided at last, stroking his back. I understand that's seldom on offer. Limited release, yeah. And for... For taking the trouble to know me. Snow trouble, Angel. And for dinner. Aziraphale squeezed Crowley tight the way he liked. I do love it when you call me that, he said, since you were curious. Crowley smiled. Should take you up to Montreal sometime. We'll drink wine and eat all the cheeses. Tree City, big theme vacation. His voice was descending to the low, airy murmur that meant he'd be drifting off soon. He would also have to be pried from his post eventually, like a begrudging barnacle that muttered fuck a lot in half-asleep protest. But they had a few minutes more. How dreadfully romantic that sounds, Aziraphale said affectionately. I know you, though, Crowley breathed. It really is. Aziraphale closed his eyes. You do, don't you? Mm -hmm.
Angel, you absolute bastard. You're very cruel to me, you know. I won't stand for this kind of outrageous chicanery. Happy anniversary. For your information, I opened my laptop for the first time today at the all-hands meeting where I was just about to give my presentation. And what flutters out but that bloody cardigan with the note on the back with dinner reservations and a fucking riddle in rhyme. And so I'm standing there with 90 pairs of eyes on me, plus everyone on the live stream, gasping like a trout and sort of vaguely cuddling the goddamn playing card, looking ludicrous, no doubt, and finally Annie's like, are you all right? And I'm like, no, no, I'm not all right. It's my anniversary and I just got anniversaried in front of everybody and he's really fucking cute. If you saw him, you'd understand. And oh fuck, I just swore into the microphone and I need a minute. And then the entire room has to go and congratulate me and at this point I'm turning red with steam coming out of my ears and I have no memory of what my stupid talk's about so I just walk right out the emergency exit and wait in the hallway while they find someone else who can go before me. And let's not even start about the flowers, which arrived in the middle of my oversight team meeting and made me have to crawl under the table and lie down. And Marco said, what's wrong? And I said, love is embarrassing, okay? Take over. And he did. And he actually did a great job. Good kid. Ought to commend him to Francis. And then people kept clapping me on the back all day and making me tell them about you for a very long time. It was the literal worst. I plan to be sullen and cross with you all through dinner and you will not soften me up with those pleading eyes. Not this time. You may claim this is mere retaliation for the book auction incident, but you have raised the stakes. You'll be lucky if you're not serenaded by a barbershop quartet in front of the whole school before spring break. How many decks of cards have you butchered over the last couple of years? You're not turning them loose into the world, are you? All these heartless, toolless decks that will ruin people's games of solitaire? This had better not escalate any further because I do not back down and we cannot afford a marching band. Anyway, I had to send an intern to get this letter to the florist in time. The team egged me on. And when your delivery arrives, I hope your students have a riot and ask you every embarrassing question and make you one-tenth as red in the face as I was this morning. I know this arrangement is a ridiculous size and we probably can't even get it home without renting a van, which is entirely the point because all your classes will see it for days. Let the punishment fit the crime. Since my every waking hour today will apparently be hijacked by reminders of our unlikely nuptials and their even unlikelier consummation, I might as well lean in. I've decided it's time for your annual performance review. Yeah, I know we didn't have one the last few years and haven't had one ever, actually, but as of today, you are on thin fucking ice, my friend. So we're taking stock. Gather and surmise. Overall job performance. 
colleagues, me, and supervisors, Adam, have commented on your dedication to your position and your accomplishments thus far when it comes to the three C's – conversation, cuddling, and generally enhancing the coziness of your environment. Strengths Banter, book recommendations, prepping vegetables, sky reports. Needs improvement Backseat driving, cookie dough sculpting, insufferable bastardry. Communication Unparalleled in the organization and improving year on year as you feel safer expressing your needs to your teammates. In fact, possibly too good as Adam has disclosed the existence of a tally of sick burns on his phone and you lead by almost 40%, about which I will think up a clever thing to say by dinner time. Teamwork You bring out the best in your team members and you make them feel appreciated and supported right up until the moment you sabotage them with fucking bouquets. I have a note here from our supervisor that your ability to distract me from focusing on him overmuch is invaluable to the company. He also remarked that getting laid regularly has done wonders for my attitude, which got him written up by HR and assigned shower scrubbing duty. So yeah, teamwork. Attendance. 100%. Well done. Have a gold star. Sales. None whatsoever. Useless capitalist you are. Workplace cleanliness. Needs improvement, especially with regard to teacups, but custodial staff are so charmed by your good manners they seem not to mind. Still, Towel hooks exist for a purpose. Facilities can install more if that would help. Leadership. Without ever dominating, you make a clear effort to initiate as your position demands. Always ready to rise to the occasion. Your creative propositions ensure all parties' desires are fulfilled. In that sense, you are a consummate example of leading from the rear, so to speak. Systems Paradigm Innovation and Synergy Growth Disruption Yeah, yeah, you probably rock whatever this kind of bullshit is too. Treehouse Management and Sort Distribution On or above target for our stated goals. Scores of young people everywhere are better equipped to face down the forces of evil thanks to you. Also, you are improving at pancakes. I'm still no good with swords. Well, shit, now that I have all the records and reviews here in front of me, looks like I'd be a bloody fool to undertake any sort of reorganization, let alone redundancies. At least you're easy to keep. Care and feeding, simple enough. As for entertainment, all you need is a chair and a kettle and a sky, and you arrived on my doorstep with two of the three. All things considered, I say we stay the course and press on with the current arrangement. Shall we circle back next year? Look, I know I said happily ever after's not a thing back when we first met, but I'm not so sure now. It's just good is what I can't get past. 
It's not happy every second of every day, obviously, but I don't think my blood pressure's ever been lower. It's that hair petting you do, that and the reading aloud. Swear it's adding years to my life. Except the time you read Thurber and I laughed so hard I nearly vomited and hit my head. That was dangerous. He's banned. It's possible I'm overthinking things. Quit doing the face. I already know I'm ridiculous. Maybe it's actually simple. You make me happy, and as noted above, you have perfect attendance, and I'm less and less clear on how that's different from happily ever after. Adam will get very cocky if we mention this, so don't. Lunch is almost over, and I have an intern's time to misuse on a personal errand, with Francis's blessing, of course. See you tonight. And just because I got all mushy at the end here doesn't get you off the hook. I am still very put out, and I will not be cheered on by anyone, and I am going to slam you into the bedroom wall and express my frustrations in ways I am imagining vividly, but not too vividly right now, because work. Fucking two of hearts. Bastard. I can't stand you. Marry me. C. P.S. There's no P.S. this time. Ain't that a surprise? First time ever. Oh shit, wait. There was one perfect spot. It felt right. It looked right. It smelled right, and there was nowhere better in the whole wide world. It was just where the jawbone cornered, about an inch below the ear. Right where the bone gave way to skin, yielding a silky hollow that seemed sculpted to fit a nose, while in the give of the neck a pulse pounded faithfully away against pursed lips. Crowley thought he could live right there if only corporeality permitted. He pressed his face deeper into the spot and wished only for more time. Specifically, for more time before his right arm, crushed into the mattress beneath the two of them, lost all feeling and forced him to move. Aziraphale's beard was just long enough to be soft instead of scratchy, trim but full. It had come in oddly salt and paprika, straight and silver and strawberry blonde, completely different from the wooly curls on his head. He'd first let it grow during the indoors year. They all had, Adam included. The new look had such a striking effect on Crowley that Aziraphale had selflessly agreed to keep it ever since. For his part, Crowley was clean-shaven again, but he'd kept his hair long. Which was sometimes a bother, but he figured this was the last window for it before he aged into the weird old face tattoo and long hair guy who was trying too hard, so he might as well enjoy it for now. Besides, 
Aziraphale would offer to pull a brush through it occasionally, and to pull it in other contexts as well, and that was no less than fan-fucking-tastic. So, it was well worth all the snarls and drain-clearing. Okay, that was it. That was the limit. Crowley vacated the spot, rolling onto his back with a displeased grunt, prodding Aziraphale's shoulder to rouse him from the doze he'd slipped back into. The two of them detangled reluctantly, and Crowley reeled in his lifeless arm. Too many limbs, he mumbled. Aziraphale yawned. A chronic case, too. Poor thing. Crowley lifted his numb hand in the air and let it drop onto the duvet like a beanbag. One less now. What time is it? Saturday. Don't want to know. You were talking in your sleep, you know. Hmm. Anything scandalous? Aziraphale turned on his side and laid a hand on Crowley's chest. Crowley started his internal stopwatch, waiting for his husband's left arm to fall asleep so they'd have to do the whole damn rotisserie routine again. I couldn't make heads or tails of it, really, said Aziraphale. It was mostly umfak umfatsch and so on. I do not sound like that. That's all you ever sound like. Presumably I was having a normal boring day in dreamland then. Although my name did come up once or twice. Or something like it. Ah, I see. It was Crowley's turn to yawn. Oh, Darren rescue dream then. Definitely. From sharks. In hot lava. Lava sharks. How chivalrous of you. No, no, I mean, you rescued me. You do know that sharks are in far more danger from humans than the other way round? Oh, more ways on Team Shark, me. Endangered and all. Plus, Adam thinks they're cool. But these were lava sharks. And how does that work? I don't know. I don't make the rules. You swooped in and saved me before I could suss it out. But they were swimming in magma. Look, what part of lava sharks was unclear? This is a very strange dream you didn't have. See, there's my point. Which is why I'm so lucky you rescued me. Aziraphale sighed in fond exasperation, warming Crowley's right ear, ruffling his hair. Ah... <sighs> Well, I couldn't let you fall into the lava, see, could I? Pit, it's a pit, Crowley corrected him. Lava definitely comes in pits. Your early morning nonsense is extra nonsensical today, darling. It's a renewable resource. Is it actually early? Early for me or for you? Let me rephrase that. Should I go back to sleep? If you like. Aziraphale gathered up a lock of Crowley's hair and, making a small paintbrush of it in his fingers, 
began stroking it up and down Crowley's throat, and then lazily outlined his features with it, brushing around his eyebrows, cheekbones, lips. Pfft, said Crowley. Aziraphale pushed himself up on one elbow. You're welcome to go back to sleep if you like. I think I'll go fix something to eat. <clears throat> Crowley groaned, frowning piteously. You can join me, or you can stay here. After a disappointingly conclusive forehead kiss, Aziraphale sat up and stretched. Squinting against the daylight, Crowley looked up at him with a forlorn expression and moaned again in protest. Leaving bed with Aziraphale was his least favorite thing. It amounted to torture that he had to do it every day. And as for being in bed without Aziraphale, what was the point of that? Mornings should be illegal, he whined. Of course Aziraphale was unmoved. I'm well aware you are an abolitionist, but I rather enjoy them myself, he commented cheerily as he slipped out of bed and went for his robe. Cold as ice you are. This was patently untrue, as Crowley was already rolling over into the spouse-shaped warm spot on the bed. Somehow it was more appealing to lie in than his own. He looked over at his husband, rosy-cheeked, blonde hair must, wrapped up in white. And his heart did the thing again. Hey, he said softly. Angel. Aziraphale looked up immediately. He knew that tone. He knew every tone now. Neither of them spoke for the space of a few breaths, beholding one another silently, sharing the morning air between them. Just... Crowley half reached a hand out toward him, and let it fall on the mattress, sighing. He never had the words when he wanted them, not like the reader, the poetry lover, the English teacher. Just good you're here. Wanted to say is all. With the hushed sound of shuffling bare feet, Aziraphale came back and sat on the very edge of the bed. Crowley scooted over on his side to wrap around him in a protective caterpillar curl, horseshoot and hugging every inch of his angel that he could. He closed his eyes and nuzzled his husband's thigh. Aziraphale rubbed his back and then kindly applied fingernails. I am here, he said, and it is good. Are you having a moment? Mm. Crowley was fairly sure Aziraphale understood that as a yes, but he nodded into the bathrobe anyway, hiding his face in the fabric. Moments came over both of them now and again. As Crowley had once described it, 
a moment felt a little like being hit over the head with a cast iron pan of fierce attraction and admiration, just as strong as on their wedding night, or stronger, followed by a rush of crushing, consuming gratitude because things could have been otherwise. For his part, Aziraphale had said that a moment was just what happened naturally whenever he remembered. Remembered what? Crowley had asked him. Now, he'd replied. Over time, moments had come to command something resembling reverence. They observed these occasions with a look or a touch or a nod, sharing their sudden spells of clarity, reminding each other. It was the only ceremony they stood on, so far, besides tea. When Crowley unburied his face again, Aziraphale gave him a knowing little shoulder squeeze, and there was nothing more they needed to say about that. Lava sharks will get me soon's you're gone, Crowley sighed. Uh, might as well get up. It's not half bad out here, you know, in the land of the living. Pish, overrated, one star. Consider, however, we have coffee. That's a very good point, but Bed can have coffee too if you really believe in yourself. Is that what you want? Coffee in bed? No. With some effort, Crowley pushed himself up on one arm and draped bonelessly over Aziraphale's broad back. Want to go make you breakfast? Oh, I can manage, darling. Nope, nope, nope. I want to be very cool doing something I'm very good at while you sit in your spot and look at me that way. What way? Crowley shrugged, or at least languorously hinted at a shrug. You know, breakfast way. He felt Aziraphale's torso shake with a chuckle. <laughs> you mean hungrily? Sure. I am loath to belittle your coolness, but if I'm being honest, that look might be dedicated to the fruits of your labor more than anything else. Ooh, let a bloke dream. I might observe that if one wanted to cook one's husband breakfast, one might begin by sitting up under one's own power. Yeah, and whoever one is, he's doing a grand job. Aziraphale snorted. <laughs> well, I'm going to stand up now, so you can either fall off the bed or you can manage. Do as thou wilt, for I have done with thee. Why'd you only ever quote the gloomy ones? Crowley complained. Then Aziraphale counted down from three, the rude bastard, and he was off and away. And with a veritable boatload of creaking, growling, groggy protest, Crowley sat something like upright at last. Aziraphale smiled down at his slippers as he stepped into them. You sound exactly like that old frigate Shadwell goes on about. What was her name? The USS 
Constitution. Old Aaron sides. I'll Aaron your old sides, Crowley grumbled, shifting his feet off the edge of the mattress and stretching. What's for breakfast? Really, darling, I can take care of it. Aziraphale assured him, pausing in the doorway to look back. No, I want to. I really, really want to. To prove his point, Crowley stood up, all the way up. Feet on the fucking floor and everything else stacked on top of him. Legs mostly in order. Ridiculous ruddy heart just left of center. There. What can I make you? Crowley asked intently. Tell me what you want. A mischievous smile dawned on Aziraphale's face and anticipation gleamed in his eyes. Because he could do that now. He could say what he wanted for breakfast or for anything else. And Crowley couldn't get enough of this expression, this one right here, right now, the rising glow of ardent elation that preceded his angel saying, What would you say to some crepes? <laughs>